listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. So coming to terms with this doctrine of election, it really requires a dramatic shift in our perspective. You see, we're born into this world, we're born as babies, little children, and all we know is that we are at the center of the universe. That's all we know because that's all we can understand. We don't know any better. Because I can promise you, Stephen, when Hillel's hungry, she is not at all worried about what you're doing or if you're busy or if you're tired. Because her universe, that's all she knows. But then as we get older, an amazing thing hopefully happens. And we realize that this world that we are in extends far beyond our little circle of our little horizon. And we realize that this universe no longer revolves around us. And we can accept that our little circle is a part of something much bigger. And the same is true with salvation, because here's where I think we often fail. We fail to appreciate that Christianity is not all about us. It is about God. The almighty creator of the universe is fulfilling his agenda for his universe, and his plan cannot be altered. Those that hear and accept God's plan of salvation... We become part of something much greater than ourselves, even if we don't realize it. Because God is doing something. Is He saving sinners? Absolutely. But God is doing something where He is creating for Himself a group of people called the elect, the bride of Christ. And that includes the salvation of individuals. So today, it is all about God's election. As uncomfortable as it may be, we need to start by answering this one. Is this really truthfully taught in Scripture? Is this doctrine really in our Bibles? It's not whether we understand it. It's not whether we like it. Is, Is it here? And the answer is, yes, it is. And it is more than just Paul in Romans chapter 9. Did you know I did some research that every New Testament author, Peter, Paul, Luke, John, and even Jesus speaks about God's election. Here's just a few. Acts 13. Peter is recounting Paul's teaching in Pisidian Antioch, and he writes this. As many were appointed to eternal life, believed. In 1 Peter, he's teaching and he's addressing his audience in his first letter. And he says, to those who are elect. In fact, in his second letter, he urges his readers to make their election and their calling sure. Jesus, in Romans 15, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And he goes on to say, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Just a few chapters earlier in John 6, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. 
So election is the Bible's teaching. It is not man's. And this is why it is hard for me to understand this. Because it pushes back against all the grain of human teaching. Because I like a God that I can understand and explain. I like that. But if I am following a God that I can fully understand and I can fully explain, I am only following a God of my own making. And shame on us for making God more human than He really is. So if you find election hard to reconcile in your mind, if you find election hard to accept, I want to say that's okay. That is okay. But I want to say this as lovingly, as pastorally as I can. The most helpful thing I can say to us is God owes us nothing. And I know you agree with that, but you think about it. In our daily lives, we easily slip into this mindset. Well, look at what all I've done. Look at how hard I'm trying. Maybe God at least owes me a little bit. But because God owes us nothing, that means everything and anything that we have or are is because of Him. And so here's your outline this morning. If you like filling the blanks, this is you're going to love it. God's blank cannot be blank. And here's the four things we'll see. God's favor, it cannot be earned. And that's how He has designed it. God's compassion, it can't be coerced. God's mercy, it cannot be deserved. And God's grace, it cannot be commanded. So Romans chapter 9, we're about to swim in the deep end of the pool. Beginning of verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ, and I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. So at the first, Paul says, I'm not speaking from some man-made ideology. He says, this is truth in Christ that was revealed to me by the Holy Spirit. So he is about to get into one of the deepest, can be most confusing, most debated doctrines that we have. But notice where he begins. Notice his heart. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. He is heartbroken to the point that it is physically painful. Notice what He's in anguish and sorrow over. For if I could wish that I myself were accursed or cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So his heart is broken over his fellow Jews, his kinsmen that have not yet turned to Jesus. So much, he says, I wish I could be accursed or I could be cut off, removed from Christ for their sake. In fact, one of the reasons he's so heartbroken is he knows the advantages and the privileges that Jews have. And he's going to list seven of them. Notice in verse 4 and 5. They are Israelites. And so to them belong adoption, the glory the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. 
To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. First advantage is their adoption, that God has made them His children, a chosen nation with rights and privileges that no other nation had. His glory. You read in the Old Testament of God's glory dwelling among them. They're the only ones that had that. The covenants. The ever-binding agreements. They had God's law. They had the worship in the temple and the sacrificial system. They had promises that only they had from God. No other nation got that privilege. Even the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. From whom Jesus Christ himself would come. And he's heartbroken. With all these rights and all these privileges. That they were still staying in their rebellion. And I think this is what was happening. They were confusing God's blessings and privileges for their salvation. The problem is they thought they'd actually done something to earn God's blessing. But they weren't chosen based on their worth. They were chosen based on God's love and His prerogative. So with all these advantages, they chose to stay in rebellion against God. And the sad thing is, even still so many today. So then the question is going to be proposed is that, well, if God made all these promises, and if God's doing this thing, but then if Israel is staying in the rebellion, does that mean God's word has failed? So here's your point number one. God's favor cannot be earned in verse six. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel, belong to Israel. See, the Jews' problem was they were continuing the rebellion against God, but they didn't see it this way. They saw their privileges, they saw their advantages, and they thought their heritage is what secured them a place in this kingdom that God was building. But Paul says it's not the children of Israel, the physical descendants of Israel, that are true Children. So Paul's going to use two examples in verse 7 and 8. It's his first one. So he says it plainly. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. So there are children of Abraham, but they're ones that weren't born through him. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Oh, so it's through as long as I was from Isaac that, you know, that's all that really matters. He says, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are accounted as offspring. So the thing that makes someone right with God is not being a physical descendant, even though you had all the privileges and advantages, but being a child of the promise. And notice who the promise came through. It came through Isaac. So here you have Abraham. Abraham, we know, had at least eight sons. He had Isaac with Sarah. He had Ishmael with Hagar and six others with another wife. So why did the promise come through Isaac? 
And if you like following, and I know we live in a time where people like to follow certain lineages and say, this is that group of people, look at what they're doing, look at these groups of people. But here's the truth. It wasn't that Ishmael was more evil than Isaac, and Isaac was more righteous than Ishmael. Do you know why the promise came through Ishmael? Because God wanted it that way. But then I think they're going to argue, well, okay, but that makes sense. It's because Isaac, he came through his first wife, you know, Sarah. So Paul takes it a step further in verse 9. For this is what the promise said. And this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. He says, okay, but what about this? The promise is coming from Isaac. Isaac has two sons. And now these two sons have the same mother, same father, and they're also twins. In this day and time, you know what the custom would do? I would have loved living back then. Being a firstborn, you get a double inheritance, and you get all the rights and privileges of being a firstborn. But here, notice what God does in verse 11. Though they were not yet born, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of Him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So God's choice came before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, showing that choice was not based on how they were going to turn out or who was more worthy. It wasn't because one was going to have more religious devotion. It wasn't because one was going to be a better leader. It wasn't even faith that determined their destinies. God before creation was working a plan of redemption and salvation. By God's choice, which cannot be earned, God was seen to it that His plan of bringing into existence a people for His own possession would happen. So Paul is saying, you're right. If God's plan and His promises depended on the behavior of sinful human beings then God's word would have failed a long time ago. But therefore, he says, if God has not failed, even when Israel did, because true Israel, God's chosen people, have always come to God through His sovereign choice, not by works. So Jacob, we have to understand, and we like thinking of Jacob, but Jacob was not chosen because he was superior or more godly. He received God's promise only through God's choice. Because God's favor in no way or no how can ever, not in the slightest, ever be earned. But there's another one. God's compassion, it cannot be manipulated. It cannot be coerced. Look at verse 14. So they're going to ask another question. Well, what then shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? Because I think some have to be asking, wait, this doesn't seem fair. And notice Paul's answer, by no means. So Paul's going to give them another example of God's election and choosing. And it is one of the hardest to reconcile. Look at verse 15. 
For he says to Moses, so he's recounting Exodus 33. He says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So you can't manipulate his compassion. You can't coerce it. He says he will show compassion on whom he shows compassion and he will withhold compassion from whom he wants. But doesn't something inside you kind of click a weight? That does not seem fair. If God is love, if God is full of compassion, then why doesn't he just show compassion to everyone? But in that thinking is believing that deep down, even in just the slightest, that God actually does owe us something. But to make the point even clearer, he goes to Pharaoh in verse 17. And the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And you know that is absolutely true. When God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, that story was told from generation to generation and it is still being told today. And then verse 18. So then he, God, has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. So God showed compassion to Moses and he hardens Pharaoh's heart. What we have to understand is God is not being unjust or unfair to Pharaoh. And I think we can kind of accept that. We read about Pharaoh. We hear about what he did. Well, let me put these two men side by side for just a moment. Moses and Pharaoh. They began their lives the same. They were raised in pagan households of, of Egyptian power, educated in pagan schools of idolatry, lived lives of comfort and money. Their lives were established on the back of slaves, heirs to royalty. But when God intervened, their lives diverged. But you notice they were also both guilty of even murder. But God took Moses... And for 40 years, he transformed his life and his character. But here's my point. Moses is no more deserving than Pharaoh. If God chose to harden Moses' heart, he would have been completely just. Because his compassion, it cannot be coerced. There's a third one. God's mercy, it cannot be deserved. In verse 19, he says... You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And doesn't that seem like a very logical question? If God's going to harden Pharaoh's heart, then how can God hold Pharaoh responsible? Well, there's two things to understand. One, nowhere in Scripture does it say that God hardened anyone's heart who had first not hardened themselves. That Pharaoh hardened his heart against God and he refused time and time again to humble himself. But there's a second thing. When God was hardening Pharaoh's heart, he was turning Pharaoh over to exactly what he wanted. 
And that is exactly what hell will be like. It will not be full of people claiming, this is not what I want. This is not what I signed up for. It will be people that are getting exactly what they deserve and exactly what they want. And God turned him over to the desire of his heart. Now, this is where I would expect Paul to, okay, Paul, You've been a little rough here lately. Can you at least soften the blow? And the question is, well, this just doesn't seem fair. How can he find fault in Pharaoh for hardening his own heart? And then Paul says in verse 20, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? He says, God doesn't have to answer to you any more than he has to answer a rock or a tree Who are you to answer back to God? Because we lost the right to complain and question God when we rebelled and sinned. And anyone, anything that we receive other than death is mercy. And people that are in need of mercy, we have no rights. And so Paul uses this kind of interesting illustration and it's always kind of used in a very kind of happy light light it's the the scripture of the potter and the clay but he's just said who are you to question me well what is molded say to the molder why have you made me like this has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use He says, God alone has the right to make pieces of clay into anything he wants. If the potter chooses to make a decorative vase or a plain old cooking pot, that is his prerogative. Even if he chooses to discard the clay, he is perfectly just. And then verse 22. What if God desiring to show his wrath... And to make known his power has endured with much patience of wrath prepared for destruction. Listen, that's hard for me to understand. That there are some vessels that are created to display God's wrath. Why even create them? But that's exactly what he says. But notice... God has never been impatient with anyone. It says, has endured with much patience. Even Pharaoh, we know he had at least 10 opportunities to repent. But God has patiently endured everyone's sinfulness and rebellion. But he says, judgment, it is coming. So here's three things real quickly that I want to draw from this one. I think we look at people and... We see people, it seems like they stand opposed to God. The living lives are of a certain way or standing up for certain ways, and maybe we'd put Pharaoh in that category. But the first thing to understand is God does not delight in his wrath. And Scripture is clear about that. It doesn't bring him joy. The second thing is there is no neutral person. Everyone born in this world, it says you are an enemy of God. So the question is not, why are some vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? 
That's not the right question to ask. The question should be, why does he take any vessel and make them a vessel of honor? Because that's exactly, I deserve to be created as a vessel of wrath, just like, if not more, than Pharaoh. So if he creates any vessel for honor, it is more than anyone deserves. In all humanity, deserves immediate termination. So the fact that you're sitting here this morning, that we are here this morning, breathing air proves that God is patiently enduring our sin. But one day, God has said, I will render what everyone deserves. Because His mercy, it cannot be deserved. And His grace, it cannot be commanded. Look at verse 23. In order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He has called, not from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. That God is preparing a unique group of people, He says, for His own possession, that are both Jew and Greek. And then He says about Hosea. He says, Those who were not my people, I will call my people. For her who was not beloved, will call beloved. That seems like, what what in the world, Paul? What you need to understand is you go back to Hosea, and God told Hosea to name his two children. If you're looking for names, do not use these two. Lo-Amani is one of them, and Lo-Rohamad is the other. And they mean, not my people, not loved. Now, I've seen people in certain places, their kids going crazy, and we have denied that they are ours. But here's the picture. God says, I want you to name your children, that we'll have children, that we'll have children. And now there will be a mass of people, and they are not my people, and they are not loved. We're not God's because we are rebellious sinners, and there is nothing in us that is lovable. And it's a picture of all humanity. But then God does something in verse 26. But in the very place where it was said of them, so he's taking them back, right where I told you to name them, they're not my people, they're not lovable. You are not my people, but there, they will be called sons of the living God. So he says, out of this group of unlovable, people that are not for me, I will create for myself sons of the living God. But I think you might be asking, why do some get called and not others? But instead, look at what God does. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And church, I hate to say it, but God will not save everyone. Why? I do not know. But God will not save everyone. But it says He is saving a remnant. So once again, the question should not be, why are some called out as a remnant? The question we need to be asking is, why does he even do that much? Why does he even call 
one person because that is more than he's ever been obligated to do. And we should stand and understand that there is great hope in this last part. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, if he had not left us a remnant, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Because God could have chosen to leave absolutely every single person in their sin. And everyone would be condemned to hell. And they would be exactly what they deserved. And they would be getting exactly what they wanted. But he says, I'm calling out a remnant. And we have to understand that is more than he has ever been obligated to do. Because if God does not call out a remnant, every single one of us would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. So I want to close by answering a few questions I think you might be asking because I've had them. One question might be, you know, it sounds like God's decided everything beforehand, before creation. We've heard you say that a million times. So it seems like we really don't have a choice in things. It doesn't really matter. And I would say absolutely not. But this is one of the great mysteries of God that we cannot fully understand. How does God's sovereignty work with man's responsibility? Because I promise you, church, if I'm going to err and speaking too boldly or for, too, or for something else, I want it to be God's sovereignty. But think of it, how does even prayer work? I don't know. I know I'm called to pray. I believe prayer works. But there's somebody that is dying in this world today that I'm not praying for. And if God heals them, it wasn't because I prayed. It's because that was His will. And if I pray for somebody, for God to uh, bring someone back to life or whatever it might be, and He doesn't do that, it wasn't that I didn't pray enough. It's because that was His will. But I don't have to fully understand something to fully trust in it. The second thing, you might say if there is such thing as election, then why do we even need to share the gospel? It's a great question. You know, election preached to believers should bring you incredible encouragement and hope, knowing that your salvation is grounded in Him and it is not based on your worthiness. But the message to unbelievers is always call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. In fact, the doctrine of election to believers should actually give you a greater confidence to share your faith. Because you don't have to understand it all. You don't have to be uh, the most elegant speaker. You don't have to convince someone of anything. All you have to do is to be faithful with the message. And next week, we get to see that in Romans 10. It says, how will they believe Unless they hear. I believe that God not only ordains the ends, He ordains the means. God may bring someone to salvation and He wants you to be the one to share it with them and somehow He works all that together from eternity past to eternity future to use you to change their eternity. One day someone asked Charles Spurgeon this. Dr. Spurgeon, you talk about this thing, idea of election, then why even share it? And he says, you know what? If I could tell the difference between an elect and an unelect, if 
if I could maybe lift up their shirt tail and see a strap down their back, I'd do that and then I would pass on. But since I can't, I proclaim the gospel to everyone God brings into my path. We are not to worry about who is elect and who is not. Only God knows. But if we love God and we follow His commands, we will share the gospel with a great hope of knowing who holds the power for salvation. We only need to be faithful with the message. But the last one is, why do some believe and others not? It's because somebody's got something more spiritual in them than my neighbor that completely continues to refuse? And the answer is no. The question is not, why is not someone or this person not saved? You should be asking yourself, why am I even saved? And if we ever lose that all, we have lost what grace means. Because I can promise you this, you can look through Scripture and there's two people you will never see. Someone who does not want to be saved that is. You'll never meet that person. Or someone who wants to be saved but is not. But God does not owe grace to anyone. If God's favor is earned or deserved, then it is not by grace. In every day of every moment of every day, we should stand in awe that I'm even saved. So I want to go back to the beginning of Paul's heart. We should stand in awe that God has saved anyone, much less us. His salvation is God's plan, His desire, not ours. And He says, I am going to work this plan to its completion. So is this passage difficult? Absolutely. Is it hard to understand? Yes. Do we have probably more questions and answers? Yes. But look at Paul's words again in verse 2 and 3. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Our hearts should bow in awe before God at His plan of salvation each and every day. And Paul was in anguish over people that had not yet believed. So I want to tell you another story quickly about Spurgeon. He was a man that believed deeply and taught passionately about election. But listen to his heart also. He says, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. If they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. And if hell be filled, let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. So church, our hearts should be heavy for those around us. So I ask you, who is your heart heavy for this morning? And would you begin having those conversations resting on, you don't have to convince anyone of anything. Just be faithful in the message, and let God do what only He can. So if you are here this morning, and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for the forgiveness 
of your sins. Then I want you to hear this morning. I know you've heard a lot of big things, but there is one message and one message only for you this morning. And that is from God saying, I love you. Come to me. And the Bible says that as many have received him, he gives the right to become sons of God. And if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ and him alone, this could be the most important thing you do today. And it will be the most important thing you could ever do in the whole course of your life. Because it determines the difference in your eternal destiny between heaven and hell. And so if you've never trusted to Christ and Him alone for salvation, I invite you to do that this morning exactly where you sit. Church, let's pray. Father, this morning, my stomach has been in knots over this passage. Because I in no way want to misrepresent or mislead your people. And it's hard to talk about something you can't fully wrap your mind around and fully understand. But Lord, I understand that if I had a God that I completely understand and understood that you would only be a God of my own making. So thank you for being bigger and beyond what I can fully understand. And Lord, I thank you for your calling and grace in my life that I do not deserve. Lord, would you give all of us a greater confidence to share the gospel with more and more people. And for those that might even be in here this morning or listening online, would you call them to yourself and grant them the faith to believe? Lord, would you burden all of us more, just like Paul? I ask this in the only name I know how. In the name of Jesus Christ and by the power of your spirit, amen. So church, will you please stand with me? Don't forget baptisms in just a few weeks. It's not too late to sign up. Discover Bethel on February the 19th. We would love to see you there. So our benediction this morning is from Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. To him who loves us. And has freed us from our sins by his blood. And made us a kingdom. Priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You are dismissed. Go in peace. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.